0: Today's passage raises an important question, and the question is not, will I suffer in this lifetime? And the question is, in a world broken by sin, how will I deal with it when I do? How will I handle hardship? How will I cope with crisis? Today's passage really brings these questions to the fore, and my hope is that it answers them for for you. There are two things that we're going to look at today. Uh, Point number one is the crisis, and point number two is the Christ. Two things, the crisis and the Christ. Our passage begins, as you can see, on a beautiful evening on a sandy seashore. Jesus is there with his disciples, and he invites them on a journey. Look at verse 35 with me. On that day, when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. You can almost picture it here, right here in Vermont, right? It's evening. The sun is dipping behind the dacks, right? The sky is tinged with red and yellow and orange, and Jesus wants to go on a sunset cruise. (laughs) Well, of course, the Sea of Galilee is not Lake Champlain, and the boat that they boarded that day was not the spirit of Ethan Allen, right? But just the same, Jesus has invited his disciples on a journey. He has invited them on a cruise, And specifically, he wants to go to the country of the Gerasenes that's on the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, Jesus hasn't invited you or me to go to the country of the Gerasenes, but he has invited us on a journey. Jesus has invited us on a journey of faith. And on this journey of faith, he calls us on many other excursions and adventures as well. For example... Jesus is saying to you, come on, let's go. It's time for you to go to college. Jesus is saying to you, come on, let's go. It's time for you to get married. Jesus is saying, come on, let's go. It's time for you to have kids. Jesus invites his disciples on a journey and they say, okay, let's go. But they say, we want you to go with us. Look at verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they, the disciples, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Once Jesus is on board, the disciples point their ship towards the other side. They hoist their sails, and off they go. But something happens along the way. It turns out that this carefree sunset cruise is anything but smooth sailing. Crisis strikes, and when it does the disciples find themselves in the midst of a chaotic situation. They cannot handle it. They're in over their heads. Quite literally, they are drowning. Look at verse 37 with me. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. On this journey with Jesus... The disciples get caught in a storm. What seemed easy is now difficult, and what seems straightforward is now very chaotic. Jesus said, Come on, let's go. It's time for you to go to college. But you're realizing that UVM or Champlain or St. Mike's is hard and stressful and painful and scary. Leaving home can be lonely. And making friends can be hard. You're stressed out about class. You don't know how to confront your roommate. You're not sure what major to go for. Your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you over spring break. And you're wondering, what the heck am I doing? Jesus, what have I gotten myself into? Jesus said, it's time to get married. But you're realizing that marriage is a lot harder and stressful, and it's painful and scary. You know, dating was a dream, and the honeymoon was hot. But now you're waking up next to the same person day after day, and guess what? Their breath smells. They leave the seat up. You didn't realize it before, but the way they chew their food is annoying. Right? And you're not just sharing the same bed or bathroom. You're sharing the same bank account. And you're fighting now, and you always fought, but it's different now because you're sort of like stuck with that person forever. And you're realizing, what happened to us? What happened to me? Jesus, what have you gotten us into? Jesus said, come on, let's go. It's time for you to have kids. But you're realizing that parenting is hard. It's stressful. It's painful. And it's scary. Now, Megan is pregnant, and we don't have kids. Uh, Not kids yet, right? But we do have friends with kids, and we do watch the show Parenthood, so I guess we're experts on the matter. (laughs) Maybe not quite. (laughs) We do watch the show Parenthood a lot. We love it. Um, There's episodes by the end of which we are crying because it is so poignant and beautiful. But there are also episodes that we end crying on the inside, and we're left thinking... Oh my gosh, what did we just sign up for? Jesus, what have you gotten us into? The disciples are on a journey. And significantly, they're on a journey with Jesus. But in a flash, life gets hard. Life gets stressful. It is painful and it is scary. And this raises our question again. The question is not, will I suffer in this lifetime? The question is, how will I deal with it when I do? How will I handle hardship? How will I cope with crisis? Now, on that day, the disciples did what we so often do. They got scared and they got angry. They got scared and they got angry. Look at verse 37 again. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So that the boat was already filling. You know, this is no ordinary storm. There's wind, there's waves. This is like a hurricane, perfect storm sort of stuff. And the disciples are freaking out. You've got to keep this in mind. Right? The disciples on the boat that day were not landlubbers like you and me, these guys were seasoned fishermen. They practically grew up on the water. I don't know if you've ever seen the show, uh, what's it called? The Deadliest Catch, right? I'm not too familiar with the show. I always seem to see it when I'm in, like in a hotel room, and then I watch like five episodes in a row, right? But the deadliest catch is about these guys from Alaska who are fishing for crab in the Bering Sea. And the show is absolutely insane. I mean, these guys are practically whistling while they work as icy waves are like rolling over them, crab cages are crushing them, and the boat is just getting pummeled, you know, like Pacquiao or Meriwether about to do, Right? They're just getting beat up. And yet they're like, la-di-da. <laughs> now, if I was on the boat, I'd be not on the deck, but in the hole, praying my brains out. I'm with you, uh, hiders. I'm not on the boat, like on the deck. I'm going under while the, the storm rages. But these guys are out on, the fr- on, on top of the deck, and they're singing, and they're laughing, and they're telling jokes. Not for me. I'd be scared, but I would be really, really scared as if these if and when these seasoned fishermen start freaking out too. You know, it's okay for me to be scared because I'm not used to it. But when guys like this, when seasoned fishermen, like the guys in Most Dangerous Catch, start freaking out, you know you're in trouble. And look, all of the guys on the boat that day, or at least most of them, guys like Peter and James and John, they're all seasoned fishermen. Right? They had seen storms before, but they hadn't seen storms quite like this This one was too big for them to handle, and they got scared. They were really, really scared. More than that, they're angry. They're kind of pissed. Look at verses 37 and 38. The great windswarm arose, the waves are breaking into the boat, the boat's filling up, they're freaking out, right? But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This, of course, is a rhetorical question. Right? The disciples are not honestly musing like, hmm, do you think Jesus loves us? No, they're shouting over the wind and the waves, Jesus, you don't care. Jesus, you don't love us. I mean, first of all, going out on the boat that night was Jesus's idea. And right, surely the idea had crossed their mind. Had we just stayed home tonight, had we just stayed home and watched like Deadliest Catch, we wouldn't be the deadliest catch, right? We wouldn't be in this mess. Why did we ever agree to go along with him? Like, why did we listen to Jesus? But secondly, they're angry because Jesus is sleeping through the storm. They're freaking out and doing everything they can to keep the boat afloat, but Jesus is asleep. And I think, if we're honest, right, this is a very fair. It raises a very fair question: Why, like, what is he doing? Like, why is Jesus asleep? Is he just cool and collected, like Mike Heider's friend, like sort of grace under pressure, or is Jesus indifferent? Like, is he just so detached and just so removed from our situation? Is he uncaring? The disciples on the boat that day came to the latter conclusion, and they're pissed. We have in verse 38 a very snarky question leveled at Jesus. And I imagine there are some other choice words that were said at him, too, that were not written down in the Bible. But the rhetorical question in some ways says enough, and it says it all. When stuff hits the fan, whether at school or work, at home, with your wife or with your kids, with your friends, your colleagues, we get scared and we get angry. And we want to know, Jesus, where the heck are you? Can't you see that I'm drowning here? Can't you see and don't you care? What's the matter with you, Jesus? Wake up. Wake up, Jesus. Wake up. This brings us to point number two. right? If point number one is that Jesus invites, on, invites us on a journey, and it's a journey that is not immune from crises, right? point number two is that Christ is with us every step of the way. If point number one is that Jesus invites us on a journey, a journey that is not immune from crises. Point number two is the Christ is with us every step of the way. Let's look at verses 38 and 39. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still, And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, as far as we know, okay, when crisis strikes these disciples, they hunker down, and they're in crisis mode, and they're doing everything they possibly can to save themselves. And this is an important detail. Up until this point, they're doing everything on their own, right? They're operating entirely out of their own strength. And guess what? It's not working. And they know it's not working because the boat is filling up and they're going down and they're about to drown. And it's at this point that they finally call out to Jesus and accuse him of not seeing or not caring, right? But as soon as they call on Jesus, and as soon as they have sort of leveled their accusation, what happens? Jesus immediately responds. Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. Verse 39. He wakes, he rebukes the wind, says to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceases, and there is a great call. The first thing that this passage teaches us about the Christ is that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, has the power to silence the storm. This is the first thing this text teaches us about the Christ, that he has the power to silence the storm. In Mark four, Jesus is exercising the same power we saw God exercising in Genesis 1. This is the Old Testament that we had the Old Testament passage we had read for us, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God says, "Let there be light and there is light." And God says that the light is good. And He calls the light day, and he calls the darkness night." And this is the first day. Days two and three, we see very much the same thing. God is speaking. And whatever God says, that is what the creation is doing. God says to the sea and the sky, be separated. And there's sea and sky. And God says to the land and sea, be separated. And there's land and there's sea. And significantly, right, in this passage, Jesus commands creation to be quiet and to be at peace. And the wind and the waves obey his voice. Mark 4 Right, the passage before you ends with the disciples dumbfounded. They're asking a different sort of question now. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I don't think they're dummies. Right? I think that they know the answer, but the answer terrifies them. The answer terrifies them. I don't know if you noticed that detail. Right, Look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear Not when it's storming, but when it's calm, right? They are filled with great fear. And they say to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're not just dumbfounded. They are terrified. Now, you kind of wonder, why do you think that is? I think they realize that the one in the boat is unbelievably powerful, And they're thinking, if he can do this to the wind and the waves, just imagine what he could do to me. Just imagine what he could do to me. It's sort of that, I'm reminded of like Lucy and Susan, right, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And they learn that the king of Narnia, Aslan, is not a human being, but a lion. And they're afraid. And they say to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, well, who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. At this moment, the disciples are wondering just that very thing. Is he safe? Is he good? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The answer is clear. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is God incarnate. He is the king of creation. Like Aslan the lion, he could rip them to shreds if he wanted to. He could, but he won't. He isn't safe, but he is good. The disciples are drowning, and Jesus rescues them. But that is not all we have in this passage. Okay, Look at verse 40. The very next words out of Jesus' mouth are not directed at his creation, but they are directed at his creatures. He asks them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What is Jesus doing here? Is he rebuking them just as he did the wind and the waves? Is he scolding them? Is he putting them in their place? I don't think so. But here's what I think is happening. In verse 39, the boat was taking a beating, and Jesus answered the wind and the waves. And in the very next verse, verse 40, Jesus himself is taking a verbal beating. And now Jesus is answering his accusers. He's answering the disciples, plus you and me. You see, Jesus not only answers the wind and the waves, But Jesus answers our accusations. You don't care about us. You don't love us. Jesus answers those. In the midst of our particular crisis and in the midst of theirs, Right, the disciples lashed out at Jesus, which is to say they lashed out at God. You don't care about us. You don't love us. You're good for nothing. Jesus answers those accusations. And what amazes me, friends, is how he does it. Jesus doesn't tell us to shut up like he does the wind and the waves. Jesus doesn't diss us. He doesn't dress us down. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't tear us to shreds. He asks two questions. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Friends, you can almost hear him say, I'm right here. I never left you. Who do you think that I really am? You see, in the midst of their existential crisis and in the midst of ours, whatever that may be, we forget some things. First of all, we forget that Jesus is in the boat with us. Jesus is in the boat with us. He is not far removed. He is not distant. He is not detached. He is right there in the boat with them, and He is right there in the boat with us. The disciples are in the boat, and the boat is going down. But if the boat goes down, who goes down with it? Jesus does. Jesus goes down with that boat if the boat goes down, and so, does, so do his disciples, but so does Jesus. And this is what absolutely rocks me as I've thought about this. Because what Jesus is saying is that, what this text is saying, rather, is that Jesus has bound his fate with the fate of his followers. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. If the boat goes down, he goes down too. And in effect, he's saying, if you die, I will die too. The reverse is also true. If I live, so shall you. And we see this truth in all of its gruesome glory at the foot of the cross. And we see this same truth in all of its joyous wonder at the empty tomb. If you are united to Christ by faith, if you are, as it were, in the same boat as him, his death is your death and his life is yours too. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus says, I'm with you. I've joined my life to yours. If you're going to die, I will die with you. In fact, I will die for you. If I'm going to live, so shall you. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The disciples don't know the sort of God who was in the boat with them that day. He is not safe, but he is good. He is for them and He is for us. What is more, right, the disciples forgot that Jesus said, let's go to the other side. The disciples forgot, let's go, that Jesus had said, let's go to the other side. Now, when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, guess where they're going? Bingo. They're going to the other side. And we might not know exactly how it is we're going to get there, but you can be sure that that is where you're going. It's at this point that most of us go wrong or get confused because, you see, when we think that when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, you think, great, we're going to take the easiest, quickest, most direct route there. But frankly, I don't know if God has ever worked that way. Now, I've been following Jesus for something like seven years now. In my own experience, that has never been the case. I know that when Jesus says, let's go someplace, we're going there. But I don't know how it is that we're going to get there. And this truth, my own experience, is the same one that is taught throughout the scriptures. I mean, just think about Israel after the Exodus. And this is the most classic example. God says, I'm taking you out of Egypt. You and me, we're going on a journey. Right? We're going to the promised land. And do they get there? Does Israel go to the promised land? Absolutely they do. But do they get there in the way that they thought they would? The answer has to be absolutely not. Right? They are going this way and that. Their route is anything but a beeline. Right? <laughs> they spend 40 years right, in the desert, facing all sorts of hardship and trial. They get there just as God promised that they would. But their journey, like, like our own, right, is anything but linear. And you might ask a question, and I think it's a totally valid one, right? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he allow storms to interrupt their journey? Why does he allow storms to interrupt ours? Why does Jesus test us and try us and allow us to suffer hardship along the way, as he did with the disciples this day on the Sea of Galilee? Good question. And I think answering that question, right, uh, it requires a whole lot more time than we have today. Honestly, that's a whole different sermon. But I think the short answer is this. Okay, just as in art, the process of making something is just as important as the final result. I'll say that again. Right? Just as in art, the process of making something is just as important as the final result. You see, if you are a Christian, you've signed up to go on a journey with Jesus, and he says to you, just as he did to the disciples that day, we're going to the other side. But getting to the other side is not the only objective. Just as as, uh, concerned, Jesus is just as concerned about fashioning the people who will step out onto that other side. He's just as concerned about the people who are walking off the boat onto the other side as he is about getting to the other side. He wants you to be trusting and loving. He wants you to be more like him. And like it or not, storms and tests and trials are often the means whereby he makes you more trusting and more faithful and more loving and more like him. You know, coal might not like heat and pressure, but it's the way that you get a diamond. And Jesus calls you his treasure, And he is making you into his treasure and he is never going to let you go. In a world broken by sin, how will you deal with it when you do? How will you handle it? How will you cope with your crisis? This passage teaches us that it's by focusing not on the crisis, but on the Christ who is in the midst of the storm with us. He is powerful. He is good. He is for you. He has given up his life for you in order that we might find newness of life with him. Jesus loves you. He is the Christ who is in the midst of your crisis. Let's pray.